Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking with Wenwan Wu. Um, Wenwan's the executive director at Californians for Equal Rights Foundation. She's a scholar, a writer, and a civil rights worker. Hi Wenwan, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me here today. So I've been following you a little bit on Twitter and you've been working a lot with um, education and, you know, especially I guess like how it comes with Asians, things in like Harvard where they're taking away uh, SAT scores or getting rid of gifted programs. Um, but recently you filed a civil rights complaint against the San, uh, San Diego, one of the San Diego school districts. So I was wondering if you could talk about how you started um, getting involved in this and then what you were, you know, if I'm not mistaken, I think you guys were also uh, working against Prop 16 in California. That's right. That's right. Uh, so, well, thanks for the intro, Bade. Uh, let me just go dig a little bit into my how I my my journey of uh, public advocacy. So, short story long, I started working on um, on issues related to equal rights and equal education rights, starting in the Asian American community in early 2018. Uh, that year, I was hired by a national nonprofit organization called the Asian American Coalition for Education, which is a, a leading uh, organization in the Asian American community fighting for equal education rights, not only for the Asian American students, but for all American students. And uh, I, one of the first cases that I, I got involved in with my home group, uh, ACE, was the Harvard case. So as you, uh, you, may, you may have known, Harvard has used, used uh, racial, de facto racial quotas, racial stereotypes and higher standards to unfairly discriminate against the Asian American students. And there are a lot of, it's a, a story for another day. But uh, from, from that group, I got connected with, um, with various civil rights champions uh, who, have, who have worked on um, the issue of equal rights and equal citizenship since the 1990s. And people like Ward Connolly, Gail Harriet, Richard Sander. Uh, so I, early last year, I was alerted to this bill in the California legislature called ACA5, uh, which stands for Assembly Constitutional Amendment Number five, uh, that that bill was um, an amendment to bring back race-based affirmative action in California. So in California, there was a, a proposition uh, that was passed by popular vote in 1996 called Prop 209, and it basically states that the state shall not discriminate against or grant prefer preferential treatment to any individual or groups on the basis of race, sex, color, ethnicity, or national origin in the operation of public employment, public education, and public contracting. So this proposition, Proposition 209, uh, later was, codi uh, was codified into the California state constitution uh, to be known as the constitutional guarantee of equal treatment in California. And because of this, California became the first state in 1996 to ban race-based preferential treatment or race-based affirmative action on the state level. And last year there was an attempt to overthrow this, uh, which was later known as Proposition 16. So I had the honor and privilege uh, to work on that campaign, uh, the Noah 16 campaign as its executive director last year. And we, uh, we, we did a brilliant, remarkable <laughs> coalition uh, that's broad-based, uh, that united people, uh, not only Californians, people from across the across the country from different political persuasions, different racial, ethnic, um, religious backgrounds uh, to champion a message of unity. And even though we were outspent uh, at a factor of 16 to one by our opponent, uh, we, we, um, we won overwhelmingly. We defended 
the, the, the constitutional principle of equal in California uh, with over 50.2 votes uh, last November, which means that over 9.65 million Californian voters voted to reject racial preferences on last year's ballot. So from then on, uh, you know, I, I thought I could take a break after the campaign. Uh, it was brutal and, and really we, we, it was nonstop for about six months. And, and we, we won and we thought, hey, you know, maybe we, can, <laughs> we, we could take a vacation in the Caribbean. And no, it didn't happen, of course. Uh, I, we were soon involved, uh, we were soon um, involved in this, uh, this counter movement uh, against critical race theory and against critical ethnic studies in California. So we were alert, we were again alerted by some new partner groups in California first and then other groups throughout the country that this is going on. You know, there is this very insidious uh, doctrine, political doctrine that is predicated on exaggerated racial differences and, and, uh, and a, an artificial racial hierarchy uh, that's infecting not only our college campuses, but also our K-12 classrooms and our workplace. So uh, from then on, I got involved in, I've gotten more and more involved uh, within this, this counter movement, counter-cultural movement uh, against critical race theory and, or anti-racism, or however you you know you mm -hmm. label that, and, and you know I haven't. I just got. Uh, I think I, I am personally attracted to this fight because I really see this as what I call racial preferences 2.0. So racial preferences 1.0 is uh, is what we fought against last year, right? Race-based affirmative action. So. Affirmative action in its letter and spirit was a federal policy designed to lift up um, disadvantaged populations. At the time, it was about racial minorities. But in, in principle, it's about to help people uh, regardless of race, sex, color, or ethnicity. And, and then it slowly morphed into racial preferences. But still, uh, the... The, the ideas and the ideology behind uh, behind race-based affirmative action are still somewhat um, within the liberal camp of the Western thought. And then as I read into the, the intellectual underpinnings and the, and, and the policy prescriptions of critical race theory, I find that to be, I find these writings to be very dangerous because they, they are still perpetuating this, this ideology of race grievance, but they are prescribing a revolutionary reaction to, uh, to racial inequalities, to uh, unequal outcomes that, that naturally exist you know, in, any, in any real society. So, yeah, that's my long, long story short version. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Okay, first of all, like the work you did on Prop 16. Now, I'm in Canada, but I was following this um, on Twitter, and I'd spoken to uh, one person who had been doing some work on it. And, I mean, yeah, you guys were there all the time. Like, you were, you know, putting it out there. And, I mean, as far as I can tell, it was, you know, it was a large portion of minorities voted against it. You know, it wasn't just like, okay, oh, well, like they couldn't use the narrative. Oh well, it was just racist white people who were voting against it, right? Like there was it was a large portion of minorities. But when a government sees that, like it seems like they're doubling down even more. Um, like I know you mentioned it in the schools. Like I've been seeing this stuff in the schools slowly encroaching for the last three or four years. Mm -hmm. And like when you started looking into the, the the stuff in the schools, did it somehow make sense how they could? do away with the wording and bring back race-based policies like that? Like once you started reading the critical race theory, could like, did it make sense? Like why the government was doing that or? 
I, I mean, in a way, it does make sense to me because uh, I think uh, what is happening uh, in terms of you know the the establishment, the political establishment's persistent refusal to accept the overwhelming public consensus against racial preferences is rooted in, in, in interest and is rooted in power. So they are preserving an, a, a status quo that, 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 that they built, they have built for decades since even since the, the end of the civil rights movement uh, based upon explore, exploiting uh, racial, racial differences and racial grievances. And, and, and you're certainly right that uh, the, the defeat of Proposition 16 was a defeat of the overwhelming majority of Californians that are even more diverse than 24 years ago when Prop 209 was passed uh, with a smaller margin, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, mo- in one of our one of our scholars supporters uh, wrote a, a, an analysis on on the electoral result of Prop 16 and found out that uh, most of most counties uh, most uh, the counties in California with the biggest uh, Hispanic populations actually did not go with Proposition 16. They still voted to reject preferential treatment. So it really becomes, you know, a, a fight between, and this is not just Prop 16 or race-based affirmative action. We're also talking about the extension of uh, racial preferences, right, in, in, in today's ideological uh, invasion by critical race theory. This is really a fight between the establishment and the people. Okay. All right. Um, oh, about the stuff that you're seeing in schools, because again, like I'm just seeing this from maybe from a distance and I'm reading some of the stuff and it's, you know, I read the, the race-based, um, like the ethnic thing that came out of California. And at one point, I mean, they were kind of blaming Jews for everything. And I was like, like, you know, how, who thinks that's a good idea? But can you try to like some of the stuff that you see, like, okay, mathematics is racist or showing your work in mathematics is racist. Um, like, you know, being on time is racist, that kind of stuff. Like, are, like, are, are you focusing on that kind of stuff? Or are you focusing more on admissions into schools, like where they want to get rid of standards or they want to get rid of admissions to, uh, uh, you know, STEM schools or gifted schools and things like that? Like, what's the focus of what you're doing? Um, I focus on both because I think that an attack on, on merit-based admissions or an attack on merit is, is in, so closely interrelated with attacks on, on equal treatment. And, and critical theory or the, um, its manifestation in California in terms of the critical ethnic studies uh, movement are essentially attacks um, on equal treatment. Basically, they are treating students, teachers, and, and, and individuals in general differently and discreetly based on, based on race. And, and that's wrong, that's unconstitutional, that's illegal, and that's also immoral. So the cases that you, you spoke about, um, about uh, the ethnomathematics stuff in California, um, I, I also followed that and I use that as an example to show, to demonstrate how, how uh, pervasive this ideology has become in, uh, in hijacking our public education system. So the one example of course is, is this proposal uh, to reframe the mathematics framework in California, Oregon, and Washington state to reflect an anti-racism focus. I, I think that is um, fundamentally <laughs> inaccurate and anti-intellectual, right? And then we also have uh, this ethnic studies movement that, that's starting in, in California. And you, you were right, the, you know, the, the previous drafts, the first three drafts 
of the California Ethnic Studies Model Curriculum were, were explicitly anti-Semitic. Now they, they diminished uh, a lot of, they, they basically treated uh, Jewish Americans as white Americans and therefore um, as, as people who have power and privilege just because of their skin color. Mm-hmm. And, that, and many Jewish American groups in California fought against the previous um, radical versions of ethnic studies model curriculum. So that focus was, that anti-Semitic focus was then um, taken, taken off from the final fourth version of the ethnic studies model curriculum. However, the finally approved version by the California State Board of Education is still very much rooted in critical race theory. And that's a big problem because the, the, state, uh, the state educational authorities in California are trying to uh, promote the, this final uh, version as a national roadmap for how ethnic studies or social studies and even history should be taught in our K-12 classrooms. So that's problem number one. Problem number two in California particularly is that a lot of local districts, such as the San Diego Unified School Districts District, are implementing previously rejected and more revolutionary ethnic studies model curriculum. Okay. Now, when you mention this stuff with, you know, because Jewish people are white now and they have white privilege, they're, you know, you, you can forget their past oppression. Now I saw this thing in Toronto. It was a online conference and it was in June of 2020. And um, it was called Brown complicity and white and white supremacy. So how Brown people were holding up white supremacy. Now, you know, I'm seeing the same stuff coming out. Like, I mean, there's a, you, know, you see all the attacks on Asians that they're kind of highlighting right now. Whereas, you know, some of these were been going on for years, but they kind of didn't say anything about it before. But like with this, you know, like attack on maths or like, you know, mentioning what Harvard was doing or what Yale was doing. When you see like, like for myself, like if, okay, if you're equating brown people to taking on whiteness and you make whiteness evil, then brown people are evil. And if you do the same thing to East Asians and you say, you know, like, okay, well, you're because you're successful because you know you do well in math like i mean if, you know, if doing well in math is white that's that, there's something wrong there like that 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 whole premise is wrong to begin with but if you start doing things like that it gives people an excuse to be hateful be racist you know take out like um i don't like i mean i, I i'm not sure like are you guys focusing on stuff like that or are you including that in your complaint or are you like are you looking at that kind of thing because i mean for myself when i hear you know well, yeah well because i'm brown and i got a job somewhere and i'm successful and complicit in white supremacy i'm like excuse me you know my family came here like you know I, my family moved here when i was six i went from an immigrant family i went to school i worked hard i got a job i'm doing all right like you know what's white supremacist about that like you know it's right right wait wait don't ex- we didn't explicitly focus on sort of the, <clears throat> the, the model minority myth, you know, which is being, I believe, being weaponized by the by by the leftists to to uh, to promote their their agenda, their political agenda against white supremacy, against systemic mm-hmm. racism. And but we didn't especially uh, talk about this issue in our complaint. We did zero in onto the many, uh, many empirical and theoretical flaws behind the hypothesis of system, systemic racism or uh, white supremacy. We did point out that uh, the evidence used by these so-called diversity, uh, equity, and cultural sensitivity trainers in hired by San Diego Unified, um, the evidence is paper thin to prove that uh, there is a <clears throat> overarching institutional structure that's racist, that's um, upheld by white institutions, white people, or white adjacent people. So, if you and I, you know, we're Asians, and if we subscribe to to this um, this belief of 
self of personal responsibility and 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 self empowerment and agency, which which are uniquely uh, Protestant Protestant values in you know in 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 North America and. It's also they are uniquely American values as well. But if we subscribe to these values and we operate our lives um, along these along these principles, then somehow we're considered uh, white adjacent or complicit in uh, in in, in <laughs> perpetuating this structure of uh, of systemic racism. I, I find that to be very juvenile and inaccurate. Yeah, I know. It's I mean, like like I said, that stuff really bugs me. But um, now, okay, I'm just I just want to like, were you did you uh, study your like were you your whole life in the U.S. or did you spend some time in like uh, Hong Kong or China or Taiwan or where? Yeah, so I, I actually I spent my first 22 years in mainland China. I was born in uh, southeast. Tang, we call that a town, but it's actually a, a city with 10 million people near Shanghai. And I went to Southwest China, uh, very far away from my hometown for my college. And I studied economics and trade for my bachelor's degree. And right after I graduated with my bachelor's degree, I came here to, to Miami, Florida to pursue my graduate degrees. So I, um, I graduated with a master's degree in international studies. And then subsequently I enrolled in the doctorate pro program at the same school, University of Miami. So I spent my first 22 years in China and then I came here, it's about a little over a decade now. Like, like the only reason I was asking is like, I mean, I, I come from a Muslim background. And when yeah. I look at this stuff, <clears throat> I compare it to like, you know, fundamentalist religion. And I know a lot of people make like a, you know, are saying, okay, well, you can see, you know, the, see the roots of like the cultural revolution in this, like Maoist. Like, would would you be able to, like, what you're seeing in the schools and stuff now, that kind of thing? Like, like I, obviously, you weren't alive when Mao was there. Like, you know, this is a way long ago. But like, I don't know if how much of that is discussed in China, or if like, like you can't mention Tiananmen Square in China. So I'm just wondering, like, if you know, like, how much do you did you learn more about that when you came here or did you, you know, obviously your, your family might've talked about it, things like that. Like, like how do you compare what you're seeing now to some of the stuff like from like the cultural revolution stuff? Right. So uh, there are eerie uh, parallels between what we're seeing today, not only in the academia mm -hmm. in America, but in, you know, in the, in, in terms of our whole society and what happened in in the Cultural Revolution in China in the 60s and 70s. Now, I grew up in the early 1990s in China. Uh, it's still, China was still very red, much more red, like much more collectivist and, and in a sense, communist than, than how it is today as an economy that's basically uh, rooted in state capitalism with a single party authoritarian government, right? But when I, when I was growing up, I did read about, uh, I did read a lot of books on the Cultural Revolution. And that was because even though these books were banned you know, in mainland China, uh, my aunt who has lived in Hong Kong for quite some time would, uh, would send us these books. So we call these, uh, you know, the banned books. And I, 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 I would say that I grew up reading these books and I also, uh, had a lot of family stories related to the Cultural Revolution. So I, I would say that I am somehow, you know, aware of, of what went on and, and have enough awareness and knowledge to compare that, that, that historical um, event with, with what is going on today. So fun fact, my my, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother uh, came from a family of small rice merchants. And my maternal grandfather was a, a so-called upper middle-class farmer in, in China. And they were, 
they were persecuted uh, in during the Cultural Revolution because one, my grandmother was considered a capitalist and my grandfather was considered a bad element to the uh, to the communist revolution because he openly criticized Chairman Mao. And the person who led various struggle sessions against my maternal grandparents was my stepfather. So my stepfather was the local leader of the, the Red Guards you know, during the Cultural Revolution. Mm-hmm. He and he, we talk about these things, you know, nowadays as um, uh, not fun, but as a, a realistic reflection upon our family history. And he, you know, he, he would reminisce and regret about what he did, but he also reflected upon that as, um, you know, coming of age time. Um, but he, he didn't feel, he doesn't feel proud about Sub- subjugating my grandparents to struggle sessions. Did you mind if I asked you, uh, sorry, let me interrupt. So you were saying your aunt was sending you some books and you could read about the cultural revolution. Now, when you were in China itself, like uh, I'm not, I'm assuming they taught something about it, but was it all like we were led out of oppression into this glorious period? Like, like how did, how did the, the state describe like Mao's revolution, like how were they describing it compared to what you were reading from what your aunt said? Sorry, I didn't realize. I, I would say that the state had ha, has uh, has had a somewhat timid yet revi- revisionist attitude toward that period of time, uh, uh, speaking directly uh, to to the Cultural Revolution. And I think that the Chinese state, Beijing, realized that it, it was a mistake. So the Cultural Revolution was not glorified in our textbooks, mm-hmm. but it was not extensively talked about either because it's it, doing so would delegitimize you know, the, the one-party system and the authoritarian government, of course. Okay, no, I, I was just curious, about it because, okay, just one little thing, like, okay, I, I went to, I visited Vietnam and... Mm-hmm. You know, they have, it used to be called the War Atrocities Museum, and now it's called, you know, like the the War Remnants Museum. But they were showing videos of, you know, the friendly Viet Cong. And they were talking, like, you know, so that was, like, if you look at, you know, okay, obviously, if you look at it from an American point of view, the Viet Cong were the enemy, um, South Vietnamese were allies, that type. If you look at it from that point of view, but seeing that, and it was almost like state propaganda in a tourist site, saying, you know, like, okay, the Viet Cong were friendly. And, you know, and I, I'm not trying to defend the United States or anything here, but it's just like seeing that way that was being put. I just was wondering what it was like because I've, I've had, I don't know if you want to call it good luck or whatever, but you know, I've worked in places like Bosnia and I've worked in places um, like, you know, Afghanistan and, where there was like huge control and they were control over everything that was said. And, you know, you hear about like in Bosnia, you would hear about the stories from when Tito was in power and things like that. And, you know, when I was in Afghanistan, some of the people talk about what the Taliban had done, like, you know, to them or their family and things like that. So you, I was just kind of curious about that because there is a lot made and a lot of people are saying it. And I mean, from what I've read, I can see the similarities between a lot of, you know, dogmatic, dogmatic and authoritarian regimes and what's going on in academia, let's just say, like, I mean, you know, professors getting fired for a Facebook post is, is, is ridiculous. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. So um, I, to, to your point, on your, your, your point on uh, uh, Vietnam, I, I think uh, it's, I wouldn't say it's the norm, but it's, it's often the case in, um, in, in, in a, country or nation governed by one party rule to rewrite history from the perspective of the victors. And, and I think I've seen that in China um, in which that the, the revolution, I'm not talking about just the cultural revolution, but the you know, Red Army and the, the revolution in the World War II um, were, are portrayed with a bias 
toward the Communist Party and the Red Army. But the Cultural Revolution uh, is a peculiar case because I don't think the state, I, I don't know about Beijing right now because I haven't yeah. lived there since, uh, since the late 2000s, but uh, I don't think the state glorifies it because it's a tremendous tragedy in terms of uh, in terms of class struggle and um, and really really stopping the national progress because the whole country went crazy for about ten years for for an ideological revolution that killed millions of people and and tore down families and culture and and our our legacies right so I I, I think I think coming back to to the United States, I, I wouldn't say that, you know, we are undergoing uh, a cultural revolution, uh, a Chinese cultural revolution reincarnated because we are still in a, in a democracy, right? Mm. It, even though it's imperfect, uh, it's still relatively uh, more open and more, more um, tolerant than, than how it was, what it was in China in the 60s and 70s. However, I do see signs of, uh, of the, the, um, the struggles, group-based struggles mm -hmm. in, in, in today's society here that, that reminds me of what I've read about and what I've heard about from my family members regarding the Cultural Revolution. I just want to like, okay, I'm not a I'm not comparing a professor getting fired for a Facebook post to what happened during the cultural revolution or, you know, what happened in Pol, you know, Pol Pot's Cambodia and stuff like that. I mean, you know, they were killing intellectuals. There was, but it was, it was just the, you know, you can see the, the, the shadows of it. It's, 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 you know, it's like a pale reflection. And I mean, you know, the, but that's what I'm like, I, I worry about, okay, you're seeing the pale reflections now if it's not kind of stopped yes we you know i live in canada we're a democracy like i said you know the united states you know for now but you know when you have kids coming home from college and basically having a struggle session with their parents and telling them their parents they're racist and awful people and, you know a father scratching his head like okay i paid you know sixty thousand dollars to send my kid to yale and they're coming back telling me i'm a racist awful person like it's like I said, it's, it's pale echoes of what happened. And I'm not, you know, I, I don't want to, I'm not trying to make any kind of actual comparison, like saying it's, it's the, because it's not like, you know, I, I've read about it. I'm not, you know, so I like intellectually, I'm going to say like, like, there's no way it's like that. But, you know, like I said, I also see echoes of fundamentalist Islam in it. I see echoes of different things like that. I just wanted to get your perspective on it. Sorry, I just didn't, you know, I didn't mean to derail on this, but. Right, right. I, yeah, and I agree with you. I think, you know, as I said, there are scary resemblances and parallels between what's going on here and what happened, you know, in repressive regimes when it comes to cleansing uh, dissidents and, and different opinions um, you know, throughout, the, throughout the humankind history, right? And I, I, think, I, I, think, I think we should be we should be worried about it. But I do have tremendous hope that, that we will prevail. You know, our, our counter movement will prevail, even though that it seems uh, uh, we're facing a very daunting task now that uh, the federal government has, has come out officially, the, the US government has come out officially uh, in support of, uh, of critical race theory training. And um, there is a billion dollar multi-billion dollar industry behind anti-racism, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, and we're seeing, you know, the, we're seeing this, this uh, illiberal trend of, of indoctrinating uh, our kids and our workers. <laughs> and it, it, it's scary, but at the same time, I'm also seeing the rise of a very uh, organic yet genuine counter movement. Yeah. Okay. I was. I, you mentioned that you brought it up. The federal government. Yeah. I mean. Okay. I. 
like I, I'm not like a Canadian, but I would not have, I would not have voted for Trump. I would not have voted for Biden either in the last election. I, I, I said, you know, if I like, I would have voted down ticket. So if I was living in California, I would have voted no on Prop 16, like that kind of stuff. Because I didn't think either of them was worth voting for. But that executive order that Trump had made was actually one really decent thing that he did. And, I, I agree. And I, you know, I knew that Biden was going to take it away, but I was hoping that, you know, he could, there, before he did it, there could be some swell up to say, okay, keep that. It's, it's actually decent because it was well-written. But when you see that coming from the federal government, I mean, would you look at that as saying, okay, you know what, we're going to fight this on the level of education as a local jurisdiction. The federal government has no jurisdiction here. Like, would you want to like keep, put that separation of powers back into place because it should be a, like, you know, a school in San Diego won't have the same problems as a school in New York city, even though they're two big, you know, two large cities or whatever. I think they're, they're completely different issues. So right. education should be a local issue. Like, I mean, I don't know, like, would have you even thought about something like that or? Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I, and you're right. Education is, has been in, in the United States, a decentralized local matter. Hmm. And, and I, I think uh, it's disappointing. While it's disappointing to see the uh, federal government throwing its weight behind um, a, a, an ideology, uh, it does not mean that parents, students, and teachers on the local level are powerless. So there are many ways to push back, such as um, filing an administrative complaint, like what we did in the case of San Diego Unified School District. And in more egregious cases, um, filing a lawsuit against, against critical race training and standing up, uh, mobilizing, rallying to say no to, to, to uh, indoctrination and, and uh, pl political, the political dogma of anti-racism. I think that we still have a lot of wiggle room, uh, both at the local and the state levels. And we've seen states like New Hampshire and um, New Hampshire, Florida, and Idaho passing or uh, considering bills that would ban racial stereotyping and, and um, uh, critical race theory training that, that, um, that dis clearly discriminates against uh, one racial group. So I, I think I think they are, uh, there is a lot to do at the local level. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, you'd mentioned a couple of groups because uh, I know a couple of people that are involved with um, uh, FAIR and also with Defending Education. Right. Parents Defending Education. So, okay. I mean, like, yeah, those are organizations like, like things like that. Like, you know, when you mentioned grassroots, as opposed to um, like all the stuff that the, the critical race theory or whatever they make it sound like it's organic, generic uh, demonstration and advocacy, but it's it's coming from academia. It's coming from within the system itself, and it's like they're you know they're they're getting these people to think they're advocating. Whereas what I'm seeing from like fair and things like that, it's actual you know parents who have written letters or teachers who have written letters and you know people standing up or. Like that uh, woman in uh, Nevada taking her, um, taking her the school to, to court, and that's another thing. I'm you know, these these people are some of these things like what was happening in Nevada that was racist, and I think that needs you know that's a clear violation of civil rights. So yeah, the, the, the legal actions justified there, but at the mm -hmm. same time, I don't want to see school district after school district sued out of existence because <laughs> we already have a problem with. Um, and maybe you can talk about this, like the, the schools that don't have, you know, kids are only, I think, what is it? 35% of uh, kids graduating at reading level or, you know, 20% that can do math at grade level and things like that. And, you know, at the same time, like you're, they want to get rid of grading policies or entrance policies because they're just, because only 20% could do math. So it must be the tests that are racist. Like, like, how do you, right. how do you right. try to yeah. equate that? That's, that's why I said uh, earlier that uh, the attack on merit goes hand in hand with the attack on equal rights or equal treatment, mm -hmm. because I really see you know, this whole thing with critical race training and all this ideological um, hijacking of our public education system 
as a deflection from the real problems in our educational system, meaning persistent achievement gaps, learning losses related to, related to both the pandemic and longer sociopolitical problems in, in our society. So we're not addressing these problems heads on. We're not even acknowledging these problems. And instead, we, um, the, the bureaucrats and the, the, the political establishment want to do away with, with merit or standardized um, tests or academic selection uh, uh, as a whole. And then at the same time, uh, they want to further, further dumb down the students or further um, divide our students with ideological training. So this is a prob- this, these are two problems that are interrelated and we need to address both. So that's why I said I focus on both. Yeah. And I, I agree with you that the legal, the legal route should be the last resort because it's one, it's, it's very difficult and expensive to build an effective legal case against a school district or a school. And you, you, you mentioned the, the Nevada case, the democracy prep case, that, that was a perfect case, but where, where else and to which extent can we scale that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, that's why I say that the legal route, it, it, it should be the last resort. And um, no, which is why we started working on the administrative complaint against San Diego Unified, because we, we basically did it in-house with the help of a pro bono attorney with some knowledge in, in education-related uh, lawsuits. So we didn't, we didn't really uh, expand you know, um, money or, or taxpayer resources into, uh, in, in, in terms of you know, launching legal proceedings against the school district. And most importantly, we, through that administrative complaint, we want to raise public awareness on the pervasiveness of critical race training with this case, with this particularly bad case of San Diego's Unified's uh, teach mandatory teacher training as an example. So I think uh, at the end of the day, the war needs to be fought in the court of public opinions Mm-hmm. It's a cultural war. It's more important, but more difficult to change the hearts and minds of people than than to challenge than to challenge certain policies and initiatives uh, in the in the court of law. Yeah, and if you, okay, I, I agree with what you're saying there. Like, you know, if you don't, you can win the case, but if you don't get people on board with it, they'll they can still find ways around and you know subvert the 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 legal president but one thing like that you'd mentioned and you know i think you also both both of us mentioned that starts with the, like what's going on with harvard and yale and stuff like that like i look at what's going on in the education system and I, you know you read the statistics of how many kids can't read how many kids can't do math and so you get to harvard and you're like okay we're gonna boost someone's sat scores or we're not gonna let in an asian student because oh you're personality type doesn't match or whatever like they you know they weighed it with personality all, yeah. all that yeah but now i have no problem with helping <laughs> someone and you know harvard wants to help some kids and get them into harvard why not give them a year to prep and get them courses and get them ready instead of just giving them like it's you're not fixing the problem like you're you're bailing out the boat and it's still filling up with water because there's holes in it like fix the system where people can't read and do math and then right. maybe you won't need to bump them up 200 points with SATs. Like that's. Like- yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I see, I see two. Well, I, I see really two general problems with um, race preferential college admissions practiced by so many selective colleges. Right. Mm-hmm. And the, the first problem is that uh, you are literally hurting high performing and hard working students who come from politically disfavored groups. By that, I mean the Asian American students, right? But number two, uh, which is a more practical problem 
is that this is a form of soft bigotry uh, of, uh, uh, of low expectations. So we are not lifting up the underserved students or underperforming students by simply handing them a ticket to, you know, to these schools. We are creating a future problem of, um, of declining academic con competitiveness and declining graduation rates or matriculation um, rates for these students. And we're not, we're hurting. So these policies raise preferential admissions, boomerang, on, on the so-called um, intended beneficiaries. And you're right, uh, fixing the outcomes of college admissions do nothing to address the deeper issues in our pipeline, you know, in, in K-12 education. So for, for example, in California, um, student, uh, students grades three to eight, six in 10 of them cannot do math proficiently. Half of them cannot read proficiently. And, and this is not, this certainly is not a problem limited to California. I'm just using this as a prime example, right? Um, so, so we're looking at um, a sinking ship and a shrinking pie. And, and what, uh, the, what these people, the ideologues and the, the, the advocates for both racial preferences and anti-racism are calling for, are, are demanding uh, is a, a, a bigger slice of pie in a shrinking mm -hmm. pie. And at the end of the day, it's a race to the bottom. And, and we should be focusing on the, in a perfect world, we should be focusing on um, solving the real inequities and real um, deficiencies in our education pipeline. And, and but I say that, I said that it, sh it should be the case in a perfect world, but we don't live in a perfect world. It, it's not politically expedient to address these entrenched problems because it's painful. It takes a lot of structural adjustments. It takes reforms beyond education. We're talking about reforming the culture, the communities, families, yeah. right? So, so, so it becomes an all-evolving uh, all evolving problem that needs to be addressed, but, but there's no political incentive. There is very little political incentive in in, in addressing these root problems. It's easier and more politically rewarding to put a bandaid, say, hey, we are helping the underprivileged students by rewarding them slots in selective colleges. And now they selective um, gifted and talented programs in K-12. So that, that, that is tantamount to vote buying, right? Yeah. It's like, a, almost a pork barrel project, but it's tr it, there is a lot of political capital and entrenched interest behind this paradigm of racial preferences. So we're facing, uh, we're facing a, a giant, we're facing a Goliath like, like what we faced last year in California. Okay, um, look, I don't wanna keep you too, too much longer, but if you wouldn't mind talking about what you've got going on, like uh, I know you, like you're, you're working on this one case, but are you working on anything else? Like what, um, and if there's ways people can get a hold of you, you can get, get support, like let me know. I'll put any links in the description. So if you don't mind, go ahead. Sure. So um, this year, one of our biggest working priorities is to sustain and assist in this movement against critical race theory. So we're helping parents, teachers, and students uh, file complaints or identify problems of uh, uh, problem, problematic cases of critical race training uh, on the local level. So we will continue on this path of assisting, assisting discriminated against individuals uh, to, to hold uh, the districts and the schools accountable to to such discriminatory and divisive um, ideology. And uh, at the same time, we are also um, start, we're also launching a campaign to, to uh, bring 
the bring the public attention onto the University of California system. So even though that uh, in California, race-based preferences are unconstitutional thanks to Prop 209, we have a lot of evidence, overwhelming evidence showing that the University of California has been, has been implementing underground preferences for many years and increasingly so since 2007, especially in its selective campuses like UCLA and UC Berkeley. Last year, the University of California abandoned its um, academic selection process and made uh, SAT and ACT scores optional for its applicants. As a result, we are seeing a huge dip of Asian American admissions at, uh, at selective UC campuses. And there's something seriously wrong with it. So we are um, calling upon all affected parents and students to report their cases to us. So they can go to our website, seferfoundation.org and go to the link called Report UC Discrimination. And so that's another case that, that we are working on. And um, in the third case, the third priority is, uh, is, is this continued movement uh, in California to highlight various problems in, uh, in critical ethnic studies. So, so these three projects are our focuses yeah, for, for the foreseeable future. And people can, the best way for people to get a hold of me uh, is by email. And my email address is wenyuan.wu at seferfoundation.org. And people can also um, interact with me on Twitter by my real name, wenyuanwu. And, and yeah, I'll be, I'll be very happy to you know, talk to you. Uh, talk to people who are like-minded and people who also disagree with me, you know, with, um, with some intellectual uh, conversations. So, well, yeah. I, I'm surprised you came on here then if you wanted intellectual conversations. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for coming on. It was great talking to you. Well, thank you, Obed, for having me. And thanks everyone for listening. I'll be back. <laughs>